Haunted UK podcast is recorded and mixed in stereo. Listening through an environment such as stereo speakers or headphones will ensure you get the best experience. Let me quickly tell you about our official podcast sponsor, CDS Print and Design. CDS is a family-run company who offer great prices and great products, such as printed t-shirts, hoodies, canvases, coasters, placemats, stickers, banners, signage, and much, much more. For more information or for a free no-obligation quote, email Colin or Debbie at cdsprintanddesign at gmail.com. You can also find CDS Print and Design on Facebook and Instagram. Around 21,000 years ago, during the last Ice Age, many scientists agreed that a huge land bridge existed which stretched between North American Alaska and Russia. This is now the location of the Bering Sea. It is widely believed that this land bridge enabled human settlers to migrate from the Asian continent and to begin to forge a new life in this huge new world. But during their incredibly dangerous journey, did these early explorers unknowingly invade the territory of a mysterious creature, one that now features in almost all Native American folklore? Stories and sightings of this mythical beast continue to crop up even today, ranging from fleeting glimpses to full-on encounters. This legendary creature is known by many different names, including Dark Watchers, Semequas, Skookums, and Sasquatch. But you and I know it better as Bigfoot. This is the end-of-season break multi-part special of the Haunted UK podcast, and it's in this episode, which was chosen by listeners, that we'll be delving into the legend that is Bigfoot. A few months ago, I decided to release a set of options for the show's Instagram followers, which were topics for a special bonus episode which could take place in the break between the end of Season 2 and the start of Season 3. It was close running between three topics for quite a while, but in the end it was Bigfoot that came out victorious. I was also quite excited when this came up, because it's a subject which I feel has the best chance by far of all the cryptids to really exist in our modern world. It's also something that Kurt and Krista from the brilliant Strange Sessions podcast have differing views regarding, with Kurt being the one who doubts its existence but wants to believe it's real, to Krista being the one who is obsessed about Bigfoot and fully entertaining the possibility that these huge creatures could well be roaming around the distant and sparsely inhabited woodlands and forests. Well, hopefully, I can persuade Kurt to maybe change his mind and join Krista and myself on the dark side. So what is Bigfoot? Well, if you've been under a rock for decades, or you genuinely don't know, Bigfoot is best described as being a large, upright, walking, hominid, ape-like creature, which allegedly roams the forests and woodlands of the Pacific Northwest of America and Canada, but has also been witnessed in other states, its presence isn't only limited to America and Canada either, with witness reports of these strange creatures popping up in countries such as China, 
Russia, and even Australia, where it is known as the Yowie. But for this episode, we'll stick to the reports, sightings, and evidence from the Pacific Northwest of America and Canada, where the legend literally originated from. Bigfoot sightings go back hundreds and hundreds of years and span multiple cultures and beliefs. The creature itself ingrained its status into the fabric of so many ancient tribes throughout America and Canada, and is often seen depicted in artwork, pottery and tapestries. But how far back do the sightings go? And which ones are the most famous? And has there ever been any trickery or hoaxes? Well, we're about to find out. One of the earliest encounters with a Bigfoot-type creature was recorded in 986 AD by Viking Leif Erikson and his men, who were almost certainly the first Norsemen to set foot in North America. Erikson detailed a race of huge hair-covered men who towered above the Vikings. These creatures lived in the woods and would approach the camp set up by Erikson and his men at night. The Norsemen described these creatures as being horribly ugly, hairy, and with great black eyes. They also noted that they knew when these beasts were near because of their foul smell and loud vocalizations. They began to call the creatures Skelrings. The Vikings had a number of encounters with these animals before venturing away and continuing their voyages and it must be remembered that they had probably never seen a bear or a Native American in their time spent on land. But they were adamant in their descriptions of these creatures that they were very large, hair-covered men, walking upright. Not the description you would give to a bear or a Native American tribesman. So many of the indigenous tribes and cultures which are scattered throughout North America and Canada have incorporated encounters with these huge forest-dwelling creatures into their folklore. There are even ancient petroglyphs which were drawn by the members of the Yakuts tribe, which clearly show extremely large hairy beings at a site known as Painted Rock on the Tule River Indian Reservation in California. These drawings are estimated to be around 500 to 1,000 years old which could put them in the same time period as when Leif Erikson and his men had their encounters. One of the very first known photographs of an alleged Bigfoot was taken in around 1894 in a town called Lillooet, which was on the Yalakum River in British Columbia. This photograph appears to show the body of a dead hair-covered human-like figure lying in what looks like snow. Obviously, being a photograph so old, the detail isn't the best, but there is a backstory to this image and to the people who may have taken it. Allegedly, the story goes that a group of Canadian trappers came upon this creature and shot and killed it. Whether the Bigfoot was being hostile, or if it had attacked one of the men, or even if it had tried to enter the cabin where these people were staying isn't known but writing on the back of the photograph may give us more of an idea of what may have happened to the corpse of this creature. The writing states that the year was 1894. The location? Yalakum River around Lillooet, British Columbia. But here's the interesting part. The company was Hudson's Bay Company. The last bit of information stated that Quote, they took the picture and the guy that was in the picture went and stole them back from the forestry records, Hudson Bay Company. I believe his last name was Holiday, don't know the first, never took all pictures, only one, and took pictures of the rest. End quote. So from this information we can assume that the Canadian trappers worked for the Hudson's Bay Company and a man named Holiday could have been the photographer. The Hudson's Bay Company was founded on the 2nd of May 1670, making it one of the oldest companies in the world, and with its size and power it controlled the majority of the fur trade throughout North America. But what did it need with a dead Bigfoot and photographic evidence? Well, we can only speculate, but it seems that this particular photo was one of maybe four or five. So what happened to the rest of them? And what happened to the body of the creature? 
From the back of the writing on this particular photo, we know that it was Holiday who went to the forestry records of the Hudson's Bay Company and stole the picture back. Again, we're assuming that this was to have some sort of proof that this creature actually existed, but it also may have been used to extort money out of the Hudson's Bay Company in order to keep Holiday quiet, so as not to draw attention to the fact that a. There was an unknown, previously undiscovered humanoid ape-like creature roaming around in the forests of British Columbia, and b. The influx of people that this could have drawn to the area could have seriously damaged the control of the fur trade, amongst other things, that the company had. It may have seemed much easier to just keep the whole event quiet, archive the photo evidence, and either destroy or preserve the body of whatever this creature was. But there is no further information to point to what actually happened to the body. But just think of this possibility. If it was preserved, it could still be in storage somewhere. And that's just as enticing as the initial story itself. Of course, a lot of this is speculation, but the sightings and encounters didn't stop there. They carried on. Before we carry on with this episode, I'd just like to tell you about the Haunted UK Podcast's Coffee account. If you love the show and want to help out that little bit more, then get yourself over to Coffee. That's K-O-F-I and search for the Haunted UK podcast and for just a subscription of £3 per month, you'll get a shout out in an episode of the main show, chances to get your hands on free Haunted UK podcast merchandise and you'll also soon be in line for bonus content bite-size episodes. Getting to a target of at least 30 subscribers is the aim and I know that with your help, it's easily achievable and it's literally just the price of buying one coffee per month. If you'd rather not subscribe, then you can simply make a one-off donation. Every little bit helps. So if you want to help the podcast grow to the next level, then pop over to Coffee and make your donation. Coffee, why not buy us one? Now, let's get back to the episode. Let's jump to 1924 and to two amazing Bigfoot encounters separated only by a distance of around 500 miles. The first story unfolded in the area around Mount St. Helens in Washington State, and involved a group of five miners. This group had been searching for gold for around six years, and had finally had success in a gold claim which they called the Vander White. Throughout this time period, the group claimed that every now and then they would come across huge human-like footprints around areas such as streams and trails. But the frequency of the discovery of these tracks began to increase the longer that they were in the area. The men had settled near a deep canyon and had actually made a log cabin so that they had shelter and somewhere to sleep whilst working on their staked gold claim. One of the miners, Fred Beck, said that the footprints which they had regularly seen measured up to a staggering 19 inches in length and must have been made by something very heavy due to the deep nature of their impression into the ground. During one of their last expeditions to the area, the footprints weren't the only thing that the miners experienced. Strange noises could be heard coming from the canyon and surrounding forest as the nights grew darker noises that none of the men had ever heard before. Fred and his colleagues were convinced that whatever was making these noises was more than one individual, as they seemed to come from different areas of the forest, and would also seem to answer each other. The first time that the creatures made an appearance was when both Fred and a miner called Hank made their way down to a nearby spring to collect some fresh water. As Fred was filling containers, Hank suddenly shouted out and pointed his rifle to an area near a small canyon. As Fred focused on the area in question, he saw it. A large, human-like creature, approximately seven feet tall, covered in dark brown hair, standing upright around a hundred yards away from their position. The shout from Hank must have disturbed it, as Fred recalls that it quickly moved for cover behind a large tree. Hank fired off a shot and it hit the bark of the tree, spraying it outwards and alarming the creature, but it seemed to have disappeared. 
until they saw it again, running at great speed down into the shelter of the canyon a few hundred yards away. Fred then raised his rifle and fired off three shots, but didn't hit the creature, and they watched as it finally vanished from their field of vision. After this encounter, both men made their way back to the cabin to rejoin their colleagues and inform them of what they'd seen. They all agreed to stay at the cabin overnight as it was getting late, and then leave in the morning. But that didn't quite go to plan. As the night drew in and darkness fell, the group began to settle down to get some sleep before the journey out in the morning. Fred recalls that at around midnight, everyone was suddenly woken up by the huge, loud impact of something hitting the cabin. The force of the impact was so strong that the whole structure moved and even long settled dust and fixtures were dislodged, falling to the ground. All the men instantly grabbed their rifles and prepared themselves to face whatever was outside. But because the cabin didn't have any windows, they had no idea what awaited them in the darkness. As quickly as the attack started, it stopped, leaving the terrified men inside wondering what the hell was going on. Fred Beck and his colleagues began to calm down and they decided to try and get some sleep. After a period of uneasy silence, the group began to hear noises coming from the woodland and getting closer. According to Fred, it sounded as if there were a group of people outside stamping around and making as much noise as possible. He found a separation in some of the sections of the wood which made up one of the cabin walls. This enabled him to peer outside to try and get a look at what was out there. He saw three large figures roaming around, but he felt that there must have been more because of the sheer amount of noise that was being created. Suddenly, loud bangs and thuds started to come from all angles of the cabin. They were being attacked again, but this time the creatures weren't trying to knock the structure over. They were bombarding it with rocks. Some even came rolling down the chimney and out of the fireplace. And then it sounded as if one or more of these creatures were on the roof stomping around. The men quickly took positions with their rifles and began firing through the walls and roof, anywhere where they heard impacts. The attack then gained more ferocity when the door of the cabin appeared to be bowing under the pressure of something trying to push it open. More bullets were fired at the door, and then the men used part of a bunk bed to brace the door to keep it closed. More heavy impacts were now coming from the walls. It seemed that the creatures were trying again to knock the cabin down. At one point, the separation in the wood panels which Fred Beck had used to look outside had become so large that one of the beasts managed to get its arm through. It began feeling around until it came upon an axe which was hanging on the wall, and then tried to pull it through the gap. Fred immediately grabbed the axe and turned it so it wouldn't fit through the gap, and then Hank fired a shot at the arm which narrowly missed Fred. The arm quickly disappeared back through the gap, dropping the axe to the floor. The attack continued through the night, with only brief intervals between onslaughts. The men used these intervals to stop firing their weapons in an attempt to convince the creatures that they were only firing when they were attacking. As daylight began to break over the horizon, the attack stopped, and an eerie silence bathed the forest around the cabin. If the men were going to make a run for it, now would be the best time. They cautiously opened the door of the cabin and began to gather their items together when Fred spotted one of the creatures standing on a ledge near the top of the canyon. Fred aimed his rifle at the creature, which was around 250 feet away and fired. To this day, Fred is adamant that he hit the beast and even watched as it tumbled from the ledge down a sheer drop of approximately 400 feet. The whole group then left and made their way back to civilization as quickly as possible. Initially, they all agreed to keep quiet about the whole incident, but apparently it was Hank who began to tell people of what they had experienced. As you can imagine, 
There were scores of hunters who wanted the chance to shoot and kill one of these unknown, elusive, dangerous and huge creatures. And many tried. The area became so saturated with people and weapons that authorities had to get involved to stop people travelling to the location in case someone was killed. The area soon became known as Ape Canyon, and the legend quickly grew and spread. Fred Beck himself decided to go back to the cabin to see if he could find any trace of the creatures at all. But when he arrived, he found the cabin in a dilapidated state. He did, however, find evidence of large footprints, but the creature which he shot and watched fall into the canyon couldn't be found. Even stranger, no traces of blood could be found either. Fred and his group were convinced that these creatures were interdimensional beings, and this explanation allegedly came from the spirit of a Native American Indian who guided them to the mine where they had made their gold stake. Make of this part what you will, but the story certainly sounds incredible. So let's move on to the next strange tale, which took place only around 500 miles away, and this one involves a man being kidnapped by a family of Bigfoot creatures. But before we carry on, why not listen to the following great podcast? Welcome to the mysterious world of the Skylark Bell. Our story begins on the outskirts of a small town called Pocket, where Margaret Phaeton, better known as Magpie, must connect a series of unexplained events psychic visions, and century-old folktales before the mysterious silence hanging over the abandoned farm at Meadow Lane spreads to the entire town. The Skylark Bell is a fiction podcast in serial format with new chapters every Friday and bonus episodes that recount real-life paranormal experiences. Find The Skylark Bell on all major platforms and at theskylarkbell.com. I'm Melissa Oliveri. Thank you for listening. So we're still in 1924, but this time the location is the Toba Inlet in British Columbia, Canada. A man named Albert Osman was convinced that a fabled gold mine existed somewhere in the forests which surrounded this area and he was also convinced that he was the man to find it. So in true Indiana Jones style, he packed his hiking gear and headed off out to this tough terrain. Now it has to be mentioned straight away that he wasn't alone on this journey, as he was accompanied by a native Indian guide who allegedly knew of the rough location of the mine, and also the backstory of how it was found. Ostman would listen intently as his guide would tell him about the man who had found this lost gold mine, and also about his rumoured death at the hands of a huge hair-covered man-like creature, known to his tribe as Sasquatch. The guide told Ostman that these creatures roamed all around the area, and that one of the ways that his tribe would know if one of them had come near a settlement was the discovery of huge footprints. Ostman thought that the story about the gold mine was fascinating, but he brushed off the tales of Sasquatches as nothing more than native Indian superstition and folklore. A little while later, the pair had set up camp and settled down. Ostman had told his guide that the following day he would be venturing off to investigate a mountain pass which he'd seen on the journey in for a few days. He would also be using this time to try and find the gold mine and if successful, put a claim on it. The next day came, and Osman packed some light supplies, took his rifle and a knife, and headed out to the pass. His guide would wait for him to return. He found a suitable site to set up his camp and bedded down for the night. But this was when strange things began to happen. Upon waking up the following morning, he noticed that items in his camp had been moved around but nothing had been stolen. He initially put it down to a curious animal, bravely taking the chance to see if there was any food available. But events only got stranger. 
sleeping with his rifle and knife close to him. He awoke the day after to find that the mysterious visitor had returned during the night. This time, Ostman's backpack had been emptied out but was still hanging in the location where he'd left it. A bag of dried prunes had been taken, as well as his supply of pancake flour. But strangely, his container of salt remained. Ostman decided to circle the camp to see if there were any tracks or remains of the food anywhere, but he found nothing. How could something move into his camp on two separate occasions, route through his supplies and belongings, but make no noise and leave no tracks? The following night, Ostman decided that he was going to try and stay awake to see if he could catch this invader in the act. For hours he battled to stay awake, but eventually fell asleep to be only woken back up by something physically picking him up inside his sleeping bag and carrying him away. Even though he had his rifle and backpack with him, he was so tightly wrapped in his sleeping bag that he couldn't reach for anything that could help free him. Whatever had picked him up was large, very large, and extremely strong. Ostman recalled that the creature would let out coughing noises and a strange type of chattering noise, as well as heavy breaths. This went on for what Ostman estimated to be around three hours, when all of a sudden he was dropped to the ground. He had absolutely no idea where he was or what had taken him, but as his eyes got used to the darkness, he could see a number of very large hair-covered human-like shapes around him. He could hear that same chattering noise again, as if these creatures were somehow communicating with each other. As daylight began to break, Albert Ostman became fully aware of what had taken him, but also of the predicament that he was now in. He said that there were four of these creatures, a large adult male who stood at around an astonishing eight feet tall, an adult female around seven and a half feet tall, and two younger siblings, one boy and one girl, both around six to seven feet tall. Ostman estimated that the younger creatures were around 11 to 18 years old and weighed approximately 300 pounds, and that the adults would have been at least 500 to 600 pounds in weight. All of these creatures were tremendously well built, with powerful shoulders, arms and chests. He also noted that their forearms were longer than a human's, and also the only parts of their bodies not covered with hair were the soles of their feet and the palms of their hands. They had a strange human-like characteristic and displayed many emotions which a human being would show every day. Ostman reported that these creatures, whilst huge and way more powerful than any living person, didn't seem to be aggressive, at least not towards him and he was fed a mixture of nuts, berries, and a type of sweet grass, so it wasn't as if they had captured and mistreated him. He found that the young male was very inquisitive, and would sit and watch Ostman opening and closing his snuffbox, completely fascinated by this alien device. Ostman would then hand the box to the creature, and it would mimic what he had just witnessed Albert Ostman doing. Escape was attempted on a number of occasions, but this was always thwarted by the large male blocking Ostman's route out, but never in a threatening or violent manner. Now you may be thinking, well why didn't Albert just shoot the male and make a run for it? Well, he does say in interviews that even though he had his rifle, he could never bring himself to fire at the creatures because of their eerie similarities to humans. It just seemed wrong. As the days went by, Ostman formulated a plan of escape which revolved around his supply of boxes of snuff. He figured that if he could get both the males to take a large dose of snuff, this would incapacitate them, giving Ostman time to make a run for it. On the sixth day of his captivity, the opportunity presented itself. Ostman opened a new box of snuff and made sure to draw the attention of the two males. But instead of the younger one taking the initiative and inspecting the box, the large male reached over, grabbed the container, and emptied its entire contents into its mouth. 
As expected, within a short amount of time, the large male became very ill and couldn't bring itself to give chase as Albert Osman grabbed his rifle and ran for his life. Almost immediately, the large female began to give chase, but she was soon dissuaded when Ostman fired his rifle at her, deliberately aiming way above her head. With the female now scared away, Ostman continued to head into the wilderness, putting as much distance as possible between him and his captors. Eventually, a group of loggers found Albert and duly rescued him. But it wouldn't be for another 33 years that the world would know about his encounter with these beasts, which were then known in 1957 as Bigfoot. Albert Osman claimed that he dared not tell this story to any other living soul, as he was afraid of being ridiculed for the rest of his life. Over the decades that have followed, Albert Osman has been accused of spinning a web of deceit with this story, and his account has been dissected many times by skeptics and experts alike, picking apart every single aspect of this encounter. It's fair to say that the decision to wait 33 years until you felt that you could tell your story seems quite odd. But is it? Who would have believed him anyway? Just as with the gold prospectors in our earlier story, Albert Osman never changed any detail of his account of what had happened. And it still remains to this day as one of the most intriguing Bigfoot stories of all time. But where did the Bigfoot name come from? And what kind of creature could this actually be? Well, we first of all have to plough through all of the eyewitness sightings, the close encounters, the videos and photos, and say that, just like with all paranormal phenomenon, the majority has a perfectly plausible and scientific explanation. A lot of Bigfoot sightings can be attributed to bears. You'd be amazed just how tall a large bear is when it's standing on its hind legs. Then there's the hoaxers who dress up in costumes in an attempt to perpetuate a huge deception. You only have to take a look back in time to see that humans simply can't help themselves when it comes to a good practical joke or a cleverly crafted hoax. Take the surgeon's photo which famously showed the Loch Ness Monster, only for it to be exposed decades later as a floating model. And it's a hoax that allegedly went hand in hand with the man who gave these creatures their name in popular culture today. Bigfoot. Before we carry on, here's another promo for a great podcast that you should have a listen to. There's some crazy going on out here. Hello. This is Amy. And this is Megan. And this is the Activity Continues podcast. Each week, we dissect an episode of the TV show, The Dead Files. Like sort of was in a trance-like state, woke up, came to, and was spinning a knife. Oh my God. (laughs) We also talk about other TV shows, movies, and podcasts, paranormal and otherwise. Really good um, podcast. I really like them. They... They're really fun, and they do a really good job of covering their cases. They do lots of research, so... Yep, yep. We've both had paranormal experiences through our lives and continue to do so. So we talk about those things, too. So I have to tell you about... I had this weird thing happen that was like... I call it like a glitch in the Matrix. You have a lot of Matrix glitches. I do have. I do. And we also share listener paranormal stories. But that was my experience at Villisca. Join us as we talk about true crime, paranormal, and other creepy shit. Mix up a cocktail. Or a mocktail. Don't worry, Steve's driving. Sometimes that wine cream just hits the spot. I know. Sometimes it does. (laughs) Hop in the caddy and join us for a wild ride when the the activity activity continues. continues. I got pretty excited. (laughs) (laughs) Call to arms. Form our cult. Yeah. (laughs) We'll gossip and drink and talk about ghosts. I'm in. Now, it's back to the show. In 1958 in Humboldt County, California, Jerry Crew was part of a construction team who had been employed to drive a lumber access road through the woodlands and forests that are abundant in that area. This area is huge, 
and was in all simple terms a complete wilderness with literally no inhabitants living there at all. Now, considering California is such a popular state, you would think that these massive swathes of land would have remote towns and villages dotted all around all over the place. But you'd be wrong. This vast area could harbor entire tribes and unknown species of animals, and you'd never know they were even there. And just to give you an example of this, the Native American tribe known as the Yahi lived in this area and called it home for years. But their numbers were decimated by highly armed aggressive white settlers during the Californian Gold Rush of 1848 to 1855. Couple this senseless mass murder along with extremely deadly diseases of the time such as smallpox and measles, also brought into the territory by the white settlers, and you'd have thought that this tribe would have gone extinct. But no. The remaining survivors of this tribe literally disappeared back into the forests and were completely invisible to the ever-growing human population for the next 44 years. It was in 1911 that Ishii, the last remaining member of this tribe, came out of the forest and gave up his freedom to join society. He was at least 50 years old, was starving and in quite poor health, but complied with all requests by law enforcement when he made his dramatic appearance near the town of Oroville, California. After some brief moving around throughout communities, professors at Berkeley University, California, were determined to bring Ishii to their establishment and give him a home and security, in return for them to study him and interview him to gain a greater knowledge of him and his now extinct people. He lived out the remaining years of his life employed as a janitor at the university and died in 1916 of tuberculosis. So you can now see that if you know the land and can become self-sufficient, you can pretty much stay out of the curious gaze of humanity. So let's get back to Jerry Crew and the story that brought the Bigfoot legend right into popular culture. Work on this lumber road had started in 1958 and the team of men had been sticking to the usual format for this type of construction in this type of very isolated mountainous and densely forested area, which was to set up camps at the head of the road and work their way down, or up, whichever way you were going. Workers would tend to stay on site in these camps from Monday through to Friday, and then return home for the weekends. The area they were working in was approximately 65 miles from Oroville, where Ishii had made his appearance back in 1911, and near a valley which ran alongside a stream known as Bluff Creek. Now, if you're familiar with Bigfoot lore, you'll automatically recognize the name Bluff Creek. If not, then you'll soon come to learn that this area will become the epicenter of Bigfoot sightings and activity culminating in the granddaddy incident of the mall which took place in 1967. But we'll come back to that very soon. It was the 27th of August 1958, and Jerry had been working at this particular site for around three months, driving various pieces of heavy machinery such as tractors and bulldozers. He'd left a tractor unit which he'd been using some way down the section of road which he'd been working on and returned to it that morning to continue. As he approached the tractor, he noticed a trail of footprints that led to the machine, circled around it, and then led away into the forest. Now normally, footprints wouldn't have been a source of concern or curiosity, because there were a number of workers at that section of road, and general activity would have left many tracks in the mixture of mud, dirt, and loose stone that had become the floor of their new road, but there was something very strange about these footprints. Whatever was making them was barefooted. Jerry took a measuring tape and found that these prints were a staggering 16 inches long. Initially, he was under the impression that some of his co-workers were playing a practical joke on him, but after talking to them, this was quickly quashed. He also felt that everyone would be way too tired at the end of a hard day to go out into the forest late at night and start laying down fake footprints. Not far from the area where they were laying down the road, Jerry Crew had heard stories that similar tracks had been discovered by other road construction workers, 
but didn't really pay too much attention to these tales. Until now. Jerry decided to try and follow these tracks to get an understanding of where they had come from and where they led to, and this turned out to be just as mysterious as the footprints themselves. He found that they had come from an area where there was a massive 75 degree incline. They then headed towards his tractor unit, circled it, then went towards their camp but deviated across a service road and descended down an incredibly steep bank and into the thick forest below. On the steep bank, Jerry could see that whatever had made these tracks had used their heels to dig down into the substrate to give themselves better grip. Another thing that was apparent was the size of the stride length between one footprint and another. It was huge and measured anything between four to five feet, which was roughly twice the length of an average size man. What on earth could have been making these tracks? And was it still in the area? Crew decided to ask some of his work colleagues to take a look at the footprints, but all of them refused, thinking that this was just some sort of game or joke and they simply didn't have time for this kind of rubbish. But they soon realized that he wasn't messing around. One by one, his colleagues would take a look at the various prints with differing reactions. Some would look confused, whilst others seemed troubled. Then there were the Native American Indians who were part of the construction team, and they flatly refused to comment on what could have made them. It soon became apparent that many of Jerry Crew's workmates had also either seen similar footprints on other jobs or had heard stories from other construction workers that had encountered similar tracks. Around four weeks went by without any incident. If this was a real animal, maybe it had moved on. Or if it was indeed a hoax, then maybe the perpetrator had had their laughs and thought that there wasn't any more that they could squeeze out of the gag. But one morning, Jerry and his work colleagues were yet again left stunned by more of these huge footprints. As with the previous discovery, they came from deep within the forest, curiously circled some of the large machinery, but this time ventured further down the valley towards a spring. The workmen decided to keep this to themselves for the time being, only sharing their experiences with their families, but a short time later, one of the wives of the construction crew wrote to a local newspaper. Mrs. Jessie Bemis was the wife of a particular worker who had been extremely vocal about all of these events being hoaxes. She wrote a letter to the Humboldt Times stating that a story had been circulating amongst the members of a construction crew who were laying a road through a section of forest near Bluff Creek about the existence of a huge wild man which was leaving massive footprints around their camps. Her husband had been a hardline skeptic throughout all of the incidents until he began to inspect the footprints much more closely, as well as the terrain from where they'd come from and where they'd gone to. Jessie Bemis said that her husband was now fully convinced of the existence of such a creature and had any other stories or reports emerged of similar experiences. It was the Humboldt Times editor, Andrew Gianzoli, who decided to publish the letter after days of it sitting on his desk. He was fully expecting to be inundated with calls and letters, debunking any such ridiculous claims of a huge unidentified wild man wandering around the forests and woodlands. But instead, a slow flow of letters started to appear, which told of very similar sightings. It seemed that this creature, or indeed creatures, had been in the area for quite some time, and it was in this article that the name Bigfoot was used. Whilst all of this was going on, the wild man kept returning, and on some of its visits was displaying feats of strength and agility that no human being could achieve. October soon came around, and so did more activity, but Jerry Crew had a plan. When the next set of Bigfoot tracks appeared, Jerry Crew took multiple Plaster of Paris casts of both the left and right feet, with the view of finally having solid evidence that what was going on out there in the forests of California was real. 
He then went into the nearby town of Eureka and was fortunate enough to be guided towards none other than the editor of the Humboldt Times, Andrew Genzoli. To say that Andrew was amazed by the casts was an understatement, and he immediately realized that he had a huge story on his hands. From there, the Bigfoot story was picked up by almost every newspaper in the US, and the legend was finally born. But there was much more than just footprints going on around those construction camps. On one occasion, workers noticed that a 55-gallon diesel drum had mysteriously gone missing from the side of the section of road they were building. This diesel drum weighed around 450 pounds, so where had it gone? It was around this time that a man named Wilbur Wallace got involved with trying to work out who or what was disrupting the progress of the job in hand. Wallace was the brother of Ray Wallace, who was the owner of the construction company tasked with forging the road through the tough terrain. Now many people state that Ray Wallace had a hand in perpetuating this whole saga, and it was his family that would ultimately allegedly come clean about the whole hoax, as they called it. But there are some stark inconsistencies with their claims, and what was actually discovered. We'll come back to this soon. Let's go back to the 55-gallon drum of diesel. Around the original location of this drum were huge footprints, but curiously, no drag marks left by the drum, meaning that whatever moved the container had picked it up and carried it. This amazing display of strength left the workers completely dumbfounded. What kind of creature could do this? Wallace and some of his colleagues followed the tracks to a steep bank where they found the said drum at the bottom, as if something had simply thrown it down there. On another occasion, a large section of steel culvert tubing went missing, only to be found at the bottom of another steep bank which was located much further away from the road. But that still wasn't all. A spare tire from a large bulldozing machine was found at the bottom of a canyon. This tire weighed in excess of at least 250 pounds and was partly rolled and carried over a quarter of a mile away to its resting place. All of these events, as well as the trails of footprints, were relayed back to Ray Wallace by his brother. Now throughout all of this, Ray had been away on a business trip and hadn't attended the site at all. But that was about to change. Ray was a very skeptical man, and was convinced that this was an elaborate prank which was being played by a rival construction company in the hope that all of this activity would literally frighten Wallace's men away, allowing them to take over the contract. The tough terrain, the long working hours, and the strenuous days were proving hard enough to keep good, trustworthy workers on site, so this was beginning to turn into a nightmare. On the first day of Ray turning up at the construction site, he was greeted by a set of large footprints as he drank from a spring. They led all around the area and were easy to see and distinguish in the soft ground. If this was the work of one or more men trying to sabotage this contract, then he was going to find out. There are conflicting details from various sources regarding the next two men to enter the scenario. Allegedly, a man named Ray Kerr got in touch with Ray Wallace after reading about the fascinating events in a newspaper. He offered to come to the site and to do nothing but track and find whoever or whatever was responsible. Wallace agreed to offer him a job on the site. A second man named Leslie Brizel came as part of the deal. He was a professional tracker and hunter, and between him and Ray, they were more than confident that they had the skills to expose either a hoax or to find a real undiscovered animal. But other sources say that this isn't correct. It's reported that both Leslie Brazell and Ray Kerr were already working on the site as bulldozer drivers. But either way, they are adamant that they saw the creature. It wasn't long before both these men found tracks and started to follow them, but found that they would disappear into almost impossibly thick brush which any normal human would have tremendous difficulty in getting through. But somehow, this creature or creatures were able to pass through it with ease. 
other disturbing signs which the men found of something very large being in the area were snapped branches through these impassable areas at heights which were astonishing. Whatever this intruder was, it was well over seven feet tall. But it was one night as October was coming to a close that both Ray Kerr and Leslie Brizel finally had an encounter with what they were certain was responsible for all of the strange goings-on around the construction site. They were driving along a newly finished section of road when Ray Kerr saw something large and crouched down at the side of the road, illuminated by the headlights of their vehicle. Ray hit the brakes, and this woke up a sleeping Leslie Brizel, who was then shown the reason of their sudden stop. The following happened in just a few seconds, but both men reported that this creature quickly stood up and then ran across the entire width of the road, which was some 20 feet wide, in a matter of two to three large strides, then disappeared off into the thick forest. The men said that this being was covered in hair which they estimated to be around six inches long. It ran swinging its arms similar to that of a human, but it was its sheer height and bulk that shocked them both. They reported that they were approximately 40 feet away from the creature when it began to move, and they were certain that it was between a staggering 8 to 10 feet tall. This would have put its weight at at least 600 pounds, which was way out of the dimensions of any living human being. It's scientific fact that when the human body begins to attain heights of over 8 feet, it struggles to support itself. The heart has problems pumping blood at pressure to all of the areas of the body, resulting in circulation problems, clotting issues and more. Humans 8 feet tall and above struggle to even walk without the aid of support and injuries can take much longer to heal. Even the slightest injury puts that person at risk of an early death due to infection. And these are only a tiny handful of complications that very tall people have to contend with. Humans simply aren't built to be very tall. But there are fossil records of creatures who walked on two legs, who could and did get to eight feet tall, and more. But more about these later. Kerr and Brizel were shunned by many people after reporting this incident, with many also trying to make the pair into a laughing stock. But there was one man who believed their account. Your friend and mine, editor of the Humboldt Times, Andrew Genzoli. He was astonished by this story and even organized a trip out to the site himself, along with a photographer named Neil Holbert. But before this visit took place, Ray and Leslie were determined more than ever to track and capture one of these creatures. Shortly after their sighting, they brought tracker dogs in to help them with their search and at one particular set of footprints which they were investigating, they let the dogs off into the forest to go ahead on the trail. They never saw the dogs again. It's not certain, but there were reports of a few remains which were found which turned out to be canine, but this was never confirmed with evidence. It was the turn of Andrew Genzoli and photographer Neil Holbert to join the search, and when they stumbled upon a set of footprints in the area, they were quick to photograph them. But they also stated that they came across excrement, which was human-like, but the amount was quite different. They considered taking a sample, but decided against it, as darkness was drawing in and it was a dangerous drive back to Willow Creek, and they didn't really have suitable containers to store it in. More sightings continued to happen, and more tracks continued to appear, and the Humboldt Times continued to interview witnesses. It was the Native Americans who were the ones to surprise everyone with their relaxed attitude to the whole saga. In one particular interview conducted by journalist Betty Allen, a Yukon Indian commented that the existence of this creature was common knowledge, and that the white man had driven out the Bigfoot when they began mining for gold in the 1800s. The species were apparently quite well established until they were driven away into other areas. In another tale, an engineer told of an encounter between a group of miners and a pair of these creatures. 
evidence was apparently found of a brutal battle between these two groups, with reports of human remains being found in open areas where the risk of accidents would have been at a minimum. But what do we make of the Jerry Crews series of events? Well, to all friends and relatives of Jerry Crew, he was an honest and trustworthy man. He didn't drink and was an active member of the local Baptist church and an integral part of his community. Nobody could imagine Jerry making any of this up and taking part in a hoax. But there is one man who was allegedly responsible for the whole thing. And that man was Ray Wallace, the owner of the construction company. Although Ray had initially thought that all of these events were a hoax perpetuated by either a rival company or by his own workers, some close friends and family have come forward with the claims that he was directly responsible for the whole saga. It was in November 2002 that Ray Wallace passed away in a nursing home in Washington, and it was also in 2002, a little while after his death, that his son Michael and his nephew Dale Lee Wallace came forward to deliver some truly damaging news to the Bigfoot community as far as the believers were concerned. They claimed that Wallace was a huge fan of practical jokes and hoaxes, and really enjoyed it when he knew that his victim had taken the bait and the prank had been digested. He'd had a set of large wooden feet made and would go out into the wilderness and deliberately make the footprints to intrigue, frighten and perplex not only the public, but his own employees. His family said that once the hoax caught on and the media had gone involved, Wallace saw no way out and just continued with the prank. In effect, driving the Bigfoot myth to the forefront of popular culture. But there are some huge inconsistencies with these claims. The wooden feet that had been made for Ray Wallace weren't a huge secret at all. Many witnesses have come forward to confirm that these wooden prints had been on display in a tourist shop which Ray Wallace actually owned for years. Yet the Wallace family claimed that they had been hidden away and they were the ones that had discovered them. There's also the fact that Bigfoot tracks had been discovered in other areas of the US and Canada decades before this incident way before Ray Wallace was even born, in fact. So how did he fake these? Other witnesses and even friends came forward to support the Bigfoot legend and dismiss the Wallace family's claims, such as Al Hodgson. He was a Willow Creek native and had run his own store for years, moving on to helping out in the museum. Al Hodgson was an authority on Bigfoot, and was literally the man you went to to find out about recent sightings and tracks. Al died in 2018, aged 94 years old. So if there was anyone who could give you the lowdown on the Bigfoot phenomenon, it was him. He single-handedly crushed the claims that Ray Wallace had started the Bigfoot legend off in the area by confirming that Wallace wasn't even in that part of the state back then. Al knew Ray Wallace very well throughout the 50s, and he was adamant that Wallace simply couldn't have made all of those tracks at the start of the outbreak because he wasn't even there. But the biggest inconsistency of them all, the one that all of the media reports and hardline skeptics alike completely ignored, was the fact that Ray Wallace's wooden tracks were nothing like the casts which had been made by Jerry Crew. They were a completely different size and shape, but it seemed that when the Wallace family came forward with their story, the media had no time or room for counter-evidence from the Bigfoot community. They just simply ran with it. After careful examination of the casts made by Jerry Crew, experts including John Green, John Napier, Grover Krantz, John Bindenagel and Jeff Meldrum, amongst many others, noticed specific characteristics which set these prints aside from their hoaxed counterparts. The plaster casts displayed different toe positions, as if the creature's feet were adjusting to the surface they were walking on, which is only natural. There was also a defined heel to the print, whereas the wooden hoax footprints were the same for every impression. They were literally just an enlarged replica of a human foot, 
whereas the casts displayed a 30% wider ratio to that of a human foot. But the fact that all of these claims from the Wallace family were made after Ray Wallace's death also didn't seem to phase the media's view of the story. The man could neither admit nor deny anything. Nobody is saying that Ray Wallace didn't fake any Bigfoot tracks, because he did. He loved a good practical joke, but it's simply inconceivable to accept that one man with a pair of wooden feet has made every single Bigfoot track in the Pacific Northwest of America and Canada. There were even rumors that he got himself involved in the biggest piece of Bigfoot evidence to date, the film that still sparks debate on both sides of the argument, the Patterson-Gimlin film. And that is where we're going to leave this episode. But in the next one, we'll be investigating that now world-famous piece of Bigfoot evidence. The piece of evidence that continues to be picked apart by experts on both sides of the fence. The Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin film of 1967. But for now, where do you stand as far as the existence of Bigfoot is concerned? Are you now more convinced from the stories and evidence which have been presented so far? that a large, bipedal, ape-like creature can not only exist in our present world, but can also stay relatively hidden in the environment of the Pacific Northwest of America and Canada. After all, we're talking of an area that is truly huge. Thousands and thousands of square miles of land, with terrain including mountains, forests, meadows, woodlands and lakes, with a massively diverse selection of plant and animal life, perfect for a species to not only survive in, but to also thrive in. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Haunted UK podcast. But before I go, I'd like to give a few shout-outs. And the first one is to all of you, the listeners. Thank you so much for following, subscribing and listening. None of this would be possible without all of you. The show is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Wherever possible, leaving a positive five-star review helps the show in many ways. Listener figures are rising rapidly, and that's all down to you. So, huge thanks to you all. Another shout-out goes to the show's sponsor, CDS Print and Design, who have been kind enough to come back for a third season. Huge thanks to both Colin and Debbie. Next up is a request to all you listeners out there again. Have you seen a ghost? Witnessed poltergeist activity? Had a strange, unexplained paranormal experience? Have you ever stayed in a haunted location? or experience something frightening on a ghost tour? Even better, do you live or work in a haunted house or building? Have you encountered or seen a UFO? Heard a story about an unsolved disappearance or mystery? Or have you been lucky enough to witness a strange, unknown creature? If you have, then your story could feature on Season 3's Listener Stories finale episode. Simply type your story up and email it to Haunted UK Podcast at Hotmail.com. That's Haunted UK Podcast at Hotmail.com. It's easy to do, and if you like, you can remain anonymous. Huge thanks in advance to you all. Besides writing, recording, mixing, and mastering this podcast, I also run a mixing and mastering studio called Pink Flamingo Music Productions. If you have a podcast or piece of music that you'd like mixing, mastering or both, or if you'd like a piece of finished music written for a project that you're working on, then please email the studio with details of your inquiry to pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. That's pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. It's nowhere near as expensive as you'd think. This podcast was recorded at Pink Flamingo Music Production Studio in Hales Owen in the West Midlands, England. For a full list of research sources that helped immensely with the content of this episode, please refer to the show's notes. Thank you all so much again for listening, 
and we'll be back very soon with another episode. Until then, stay safe and take care.